Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ollie May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately? So given we're in Pride Month in the UK, obviously a really key, momentous, celebratory occasion for LGBTQ individuals, I wanted to highlight a survey by LGBTU Scotland, which is a charity, and it found that one third of those who responded to this survey did not feel safe or supported by their general practitioner and would hesitate before approaching NHS services for fear of prejudice. So this included not being believed by healthcare professionals, facing discrimination in medical settings, and feeling they had to laboriously explain or conversely conceal their identity. And this survey actually mirrors the results of a recent survey by another leading DNI charity called Stonewall, which found that 23% of LGBTQ plus people have witnessed discriminatory or negative remarks against other LGBTQ plus individuals by healthcare staff. And furthermore, one in seven LGBT staff have avoided treatment for fear of discrimination. Well, first off, Jack, that's really disappointing to hear. And I think that's definitely a wake up call for everyone involved in health and well-being of the LGBTQ plus communities. And it's important for us, especially during Pride Month, to bring a focus onto these issues of health equity. Jack, those charity findings that you referenced, there were a number of recommendations for the Scottish government and health boards to implement coming off the back of that. So that included mandatory training for all staff, allowing young people to choose when they transition to adult services rather than having what is currently implemented, which is a mandatory transition at 18. For NHS services to take children and young people's rights approach to providing care. And I think this is an issue that we've discussed a number of times in different settings on this podcast, Jack, but finally to substantially reduce the lengthy waiting times for first appointments at NHS gender identity services. It's having a huge impact on the patients, these long waiting times. And this is an issue, as I said, that is impacting many NHS services in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. Some interesting recommendations there. And given the backdrop of the challenges the NHS are facing, you know, they, they could be challenging to implement given the priorities, but hopefully we'll see some movement. However, in worrying news, this is not just an issue that affects Scotland, it actually affects the whole of the UK. And this was evidenced through a similar survey carried out this year by the British Medical Association or the BMA, as well as the Association for LGBTQ plus doctors and dentists, which highlighted some real difficulties faced by LGBTQ plus NHS staff. And to give you a bit more colour around that, more than a quarter of lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer respondents and three in five trans respondents considered their experience serious enough to amount to unlawful discrimination, abuse or harassment. And for NHS staff, facilities aren't always inclusive. And to give an example of that, many accident and emergency departments actually have insufficient and inadequate changing room options. So clearly a long way to go, given some really primitive things like that don't exist well enough today. Thanks, Jack. And I think looking towards the future, this is something that the NHS recognises. And there are various schemes that the NHS is trying to implement to improve, as you mentioned, both the experience of LGBTQ plus patients, but also staff across the UK. And I think something that many of our listeners will recognise is the NHS Rainbow Badge Initiative, started by Dr. Michael Farquhar at Evelina London. And you'll see many staff now in NHS trusts and community health organisations wearing the badge 
visibly showing that they're an ally to patients and colleagues, that they can be trusted to provide inclusive, safe healthcare, and that they're informed about the issues that affects this group. Also, and this was news to me actually in researching this, three quarters of medical schools have signed the charter to stop so-called conversion therapy. I didn't realise that that still happened in the UK and there's really growing support from LGBTQ plus communities to ban conversion therapy and to update the curriculum to include authentic representation of LGBTQ plus people. We're also seeing more barriers coming down for couples trying to have families. For many, many years in the UK, lesbians and bi women and trans people, the way it used to work is they had to pay up to £25,000 of private healthcare before they could access IVF on the NHS. Now, in February this year, it was announced that female same-sex couples and single women will no longer have to go through those private rounds before they can access artificial insemination via NHS fertility treatments. So a huge shift in the support that the NHS can provide lesbian and bi couples. Just to round this one out, we've shown one additional kind of barrier that's coming down, which is relates to the UK government implementing new legislation, allowing more gay and bisexual men to give blood. So in addition to the steps you mentioned, this is another really great step forward. And it's good to see the government are working to improve inclusivity within NHS. Clearly, hopefully we can continue to see this and healthcare professionals improving their knowledge and awareness of these issues. Obviously, Pride Month is a great way in which to do that and celebrate this community and really move this forward. You know, a lot of progress has been made, but obviously still gaps exist, as we've highlighted here. But some encouraging signs that hopefully things are moving in the right direction to ensure there's equity uh, for all. As we wind down Pride Month over here stateside and UK folks are getting ready to kick off their Pride celebrations, I'm really heartened to see the recognition of some of the gaps in inclusivity and health equity and movements by the government and public health to remedy that. I think here stateside, we've seen small amounts of movement in a positive direction. Earlier this year, the FDA did issue their final guidance that similarly to what you'd said for the NHS, blood donation be considered an individual case-by-case basis regardless of gender or sexual orientation. So a small win in that area. But if you look at the political climate here, stateside, particularly in Florida, we're seeing a lot of push against health equity for the LGBTQ community, particularly with some of the legislation to ban gender-affirming care for minors, even limit gender-affirming care for adults allowing, in some cases, legal discrimination of healthcare access based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or quote-unquote moral or ethical discernment by providers or payers. So definitely feels like in some parts of the states, we're going in the wrong direction when it comes to health equity. Ali, I'm curious if we're seeing any more examples of public health bodies really trying to create inclusive, safe environments in Europe or the UK. Jen, as you mentioned for LGBTQ plus healthcare issues, and one of the big steps governments and health bodies can take is recognition. This is a similar trend that we're seeing uh, with mental health in the EU at the moment. Across the board and through different EU health organisations, we are seeing real recognition of the mental health challenge that millions of patients are facing here. And this month, the EU Commission has allocated $1.3 billion to tackle mental health, and they actually labelled it a silent epidemic. So really giving it the recognition, the focus, and then backing it with huge amounts of funding to try and tackle this. This is a real landmark mental health strategy here to confront this silent epidemic. 
And the commission has proposed an expansive initiative that's going to transform the way that mental health is currently addressed in the European Union. It's predicted by the commission that mental health issues have affected 84 million people in the EU prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. They estimate the cost of that at 600 billion. So if this scheme that costs 1.3 billion has any positive impact, really, you're going to see benefit from a healthcare perspective of that. And that 600 billion that mental health is costing currently in the EU, that's actually 4% of the bloc's GDP. Wow, some really staggering statistics there, Ollie, and quite shocking ones. I had no idea of the sheer scale. Obviously, we know mental health is such a significant challenge, but when you put numbers like that to it, it really does showcase how much of a significant challenge that exists within this space. And it's great that funding is being provided. I'd love to get a bit more insight, if you know, in terms of which particular groups or communities this initiative may be targeting or benefiting, as well as any links to any governmental policy or indeed patient organisation groups. The initiative is very comprehensive, as you would expect for such a huge investment, but it really taps into something that we reflect on a lot here at Dynamic and the convergence of healthcare and the collaboration between national and regional actors. When you think about the EU, obviously this is the EU Commission, but they're then going to interact with the national healthcare bodies of 27 countries. And then they all have their own individual policies and structures for healthcare. So it's a huge challenge, but that integrated approach is something that the EU Commission is really focusing on here. And they're focusing on everything from patient organisations to civil society organisations to universities and industry really trying to bring all these different sectors together to say how can we better tackle mental health and how can we equip these local entities with the tools that they need to better serve patients. It's also worth noting that the Commission's new strategy will support individual member states in their efforts to meet the World Health Organization's targets for non-communicable diseases by 2025 and also the SDGs by 2030. You know, nowadays, any European Commission funding often comes with needing to meet sustainable development goals. Well, it's great to see it's so comprehensive, Ollie. Obviously, such a massive issue, and it's good that it's got a multi-pronged approach involving all the right people to be able to make advancements in this space. I'm encouraged by that. The proof's in the pudding, of course, so it'd be interesting to see how it translates and, and gets implemented. There was another stat that I saw recently related to the use of antidepressants, because as many people that be listening to the podcast know that antidepressants are widely used across the world, and particularly in the UK. And people might be surprised to learn that more than 8 million people in England are actually on antidepressants. And actually quite a lot of them are on them for more than five years, despite there's not being too much evidence to suggest they're effective over the long term. And this number is rising. That figure of 8 million, that's actually 1 million more people than the five years previously. So they're obviously massively on the rise in terms of their use. Individuals have taken them for a significant period of time, despite that limited evidence, which is a bit of a concern. I know we covered on our last podcast some innovative mental health treatments with the use of things like AI and VR technology. So it's encouraging that there's investments in technology to tackle this space. However, we need to get a handle on the use of these antidepressants because although they're often prescribed by doctors, there is that lack of evidence there. And some suggest they just mask the symptoms rather than treating the underlying challenges related to the condition that these individuals are facing. Well, I mean, those antidepressant statistics, Jack, 
are shocking. They're surprising to me. I didn't realize it was so many people on antidepressants. And I think definitely one of the concerns has to be the length of time. Obviously, there are different antidepressants, but they're not all intended to be used for a period of over five years. And tackling that underlying issue as well, I think, as with our previous discussion on LGBTQ plus funding and services, there is a real shortage of mental health services in the UK. And I think that's where those innovative technologies come in that the government is trying to implement. They're trying to do more with less and bring in innovative solutions to treat more patients and leverage technology. The government did announce earlier this year that they're going to use 150 million to build new facilities to support mental health urgent and emergency care services. Again, slightly different to supporting those patients that have been on antidepressants for a long time. Um, But this is something certainly on the radar and on their agenda. It's really great to see both the UK and the EU focus so holistically on mental health and really taking the time and the effort to make sure that what they come up with is a comprehensive program and solution and not something that's, you know, just sole reaction to some of the conversation that really got accelerated during the pandemic. As we're talking about mental health, it's definitely got my brain buzzing, pun intended. I think you had mentioned, Jack, that there's a piece of news related to neuroscience that you've been following. Biopharma company Ipsen have announced a science plant in Wrexham. I know a lot of people know about Wrexham now. They perhaps didn't a few years ago, but now that good old Ryan Reynolds and Rob McKelleny have taken over, Wrexham seems to be everywhere. And it's great to see that this town actually is getting attention, not just on the football field, but also from a scientific point of view. And essentially, this plant sells, researches, develops and manufactures transformative medicines in oncology, rare disease and neuroscience. And it's received funding for a new state-of-the-art neuroscience centre of excellence facility. It's actually part of broader Ipsen's ongoing efforts to develop its Rexman site and expand its capabilities to treat new diseases and ultimately, of course, improve patient outcomes. They've also been awarded a grant of around three million from the government through the Life Sciences Innovative Manufacturing Fund. And essentially, this fund was set up to support businesses investing in life sciences to promote growth in terms of manufacturing in the UK as part of a larger £75 million investment from the government into Ipsen to grow and manufacture some really innovative medicines for neurological conditions where there's a large unmet need. Yeah, Wrexham certainly seems to be everywhere at the moment, Jack. And amazing to see that they've got this new funding and this investment in that rural community is continuing to increase. Regular listeners will remember we covered the UK Life Sciences Vision Fund on a recent podcast. So it's great to see these tangible, real investments being made from that manufacturing fund. I think it's also worth noting that we're seeing more productive life sciences manufacturing clusters across the UK. Clearly, the southeast of England and around Cambridge has always been a source of a lot of life sciences innovation and manufacturing. But it's been a challenge for multiple governments, really for decades now, to try and increase this life sciences investment away from the southeast of England. So I think this is a real win on many fronts for the life sciences industry, but also for regional economic development. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. And it's really interesting to see that this centre in Wales you just spoke about is actually not the only one that's been built in the UK. There's actually one in London at the University College London site. They've also announced a world-class neuroscience centre of excellence 
and it's reached a, a major milestone. This first of its kind centre is going to bring together clinical work and research with an on-site outpatient facility, which is going to really allow clinicians and researchers to work collaboratively and closely with people with neurological disorders alongside their families, doctors and researchers. So that's really encouraging in terms of this additional centre being established. I know Alzheimer's has also been in the news of late because it's just been such a large unmet need for Alzheimer's, obviously with the ageing population. It's a real challenge in terms of being able to find effective treatments for Alzheimer's, given how many people it affects. But there was that drug, I believe, that was approved last year, which is giving some hope to patients as it slows down the progression of the disease. So hopefully with these centres of excellence being established, there'll be more and more treatments that are available for patients, which is really, really important given the ageing population. Jack, clearly this is going to be an area that funding and research is only going to increase, is it? impacts more people. I know you mentioned Alzheimer's, but when you reference neuroscience, which specific conditions are these new centres focusing on? Yeah, it's a good question, Ollie. So the UCL or University of College of London Centre seems to be focusing on a range of areas, including multiple sclerosis, neuromuscular diseases, as well as dementia and Alzheimer's. Whereas in contrast, the Rexham facility seems to be focusing on neurotoxins, as well as immobility diseases such as cerebral palsy. And on the dementia front, it's predicted to nearly triple by 2050 in Europe, as we experience this ageing population I was referencing earlier. A key takeaway for me for this story is how yet again we can see how the life science sector is crucial to UK's health resilience. And it's great to see all this investment from the government in this space. You mentioned earlier around trying to expand it from the southeast of England. I know we've covered this on a number of our podcasts in terms of, you know, we're very proud as a nation to have such a strong scientific presence and life sciences expertise. It's nice to see that there's continued investment and growth in this area so we can keep that reputation as one of the leaders in this space. And we're just hopefully going to see more and more of this investment to help ensure that we can improve the lives of patients living in this country and further afield across the globe. Well, I'm certainly leaving this month's recording feeling really inspired by all the positive movement we're seeing in the UK and across Europe when it comes to innovation, mental health, and health equity. So thank you both for taking me and our listeners through all of this good news. We know that the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.